Welcome to the Carnivore Cast, a podcast focused on the carnivore diet and lifestyle, with practical advice from successful carnivores, citizen scientists, and top researchers. I'm your host, Scott Meslinski, and I'm here to speak with experts and experienced carnivores to get answers to your biggest and meatiest questions while helping you live your best life as a carnivore. This episode is brought to you by The Carnivore Bar. It's an ancestrally inspired meal replacement bar with real clean ingredients. Zero carb, high fat, just meat. It's only made of beef, tallow, and salt. And for crazy carnivores who don't eat salt, you can also get them unsalted. It's shelf-stable and it's portable and convenient. These are great for long hikes, business trips, traveling, or just having an easy, ready option in your pantry. I have them at least once a week, and they're delicious. You can use CarnivoreCast, all one word, at CarnivoreBar.com to get a discount. They're the perfect combination of crunchy and creamy. And as they say on their website, well, we do not believe that honey is part of the true carnivore diet. We do support it as a wholesome food choice, especially for our animal-based and paleo dieters. I don't have an opinion on that, but uh, you can get a honey flavor too. <laughs> Check them out at CarnivoreBar.com and use code CarnivoreCast. Jane Buxton is an accomplished author and award-winning journalist. She's the author of The Great Plant-Based Con, Why Eating a Plants-Only Diet Won't Improve Your Health or Save the Planet, an excellent piece focused on how plant-based diets can harm your health, how pharma companies and food companies profit from people eating this way, and more. Welcome to the show, Jane. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so I, I'd love to start by hearing your story um, you know, how, how you got to, to writing and writing about this topic in particular, um, and what made you start pursuing um, research around this? Well, I had been writing for 20 years uh, before I started this book, uh, a, a mix of um, nonfiction and fiction, uh, short stories, journalistic pieces, the whole, the whole gamut. But something caught my attention about three years ago that was going on around me, around all of us, which was this incredible amplification of the plant-based message mm. um, <clears throat> to such an extent that it, it was just it was just ubiquitous. You just couldn't get away from it. And yeah. um, I noticed that there were a lot of facts being called upon to justify that message, which were false as far as mm. I understood them. So... I started to do some research really for myself, just out of interest. I'm a very curious person and, and uh, I wanted to, to figure out this issue for myself. And then I started to realize that it was much more serious than that. And, and when the movie Game Changers came out, mm. um, which you probably remember, um, yeah. it was a bit of a tipping point for me because mm. I thought it was just so dangerous what was being said in that film. And also very dangerous how many young people seem to be taken in by the so-called science in that film. Yeah. So I thought, okay, this, this is, I've got to get serious now. I have to write a book. That's what it started it. Yeah. And were you aware of um, like low carbohydrate or ketogenic or carnivore type diets before writing? The book? I was, I was. And in fact, that's a good point because probably my, my sensitivity to the to the give up meat message was heightened yeah. because I about three years before that I had 
discovered the wonders of low carb eating and I'd started doing research into how good that was for health. And, mm. and so I guess it was, you know, that, that really uh, brought it in stark relief for me, knowing how much good could be done for diabetics, for obesity, for mm. general um, blood sugar control for ordinary people like myself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, knowing that and knowing that it depended on really uh, quite a, um, a big inclusion of animal foods in the diet to make it work effectively. Yeah. So, yeah, that was another kind of in, impetus, really, for me to want to to write about this. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I want to get back to the point you made about young people in particular. Yeah. Um, I think yeah. that's an interesting thread. But uh, first, I wanted to ask, like, where did you start to gather your research and, and what kind of influenced you or who um, who'd you look to for answers and, and knowledge? Well, a couple of writers and, uh, and books were really influential early on for me. I'd read Dr. Jason Fung's book mm. um, previously. I'd read um, Leara Keith's wonderful book, The Vegetarian Myth. Yeah. Um, I had read a whole bunch of stuff by Professor Tim Noakes, by um, by uh, Ivor Cummins. So I had already started down that path, and I just followed the lead. Then I just each person that I read, I would then read all of the um, main sources for 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 whatever book that was. And so yeah. I dug and dug and dug. I did a lot of interviews with leading thinkers in the field, both on the environmental side and the nutrition side. Mm. And again, they would lead me to, they would point out papers which were seminal and very uh, critical to the argument. So I had support in that sense that I wasn't operating in the dark. I had some very um, strong scientific thinkers who were guiding me to the information that I needed. Um, But I had to teach myself a whole new language in terms of reading and interpreting studies. Yeah. And that to me has been incredibly gratifying, actually, because what you realize when you start to learn how to interpret studies is that most of them are worth very little, (laughs) very little in terms of what they can tell us. So it's kind of um, it's a real revelation to understand just how few of those studies say what they say they say Mm. and just how few and far between are the newspaper reports that are accurate about what these studies say. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great point. They'll draw whatever inference, whatever headline they want. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned environmentalists. I'm very curious because, um, you know, two very common narratives that I hear from people in, in daily life are, you know, Oh, I'm trying to eat more plants and be healthier, or I'm trying Mm -hmm. to, I'm trying to go vegan to, to be healthier. Um, that is pervasive and we can talk about that. But the other one is like, I'm eating less meat um, to try to help the planet or, oh, you know, I I care about environmentalism. So I'm trying to stay away from meat, something like that, something mm-hmm. or, or, you know, you may, it might be something even more subtle. You might be going on a um, trip and, you know, there is, it's a very environmental friendly trip and they're saying, oh, we have, you know, we don't have any meat on our, yeah. on our selection because we're trying to be, you know, pro, pro earth, whatever it is. Why do you, did you find environmentalists, um, who, who didn't accept that narrative? Um, and why do you think that one is, is so pervasive as well? Wow. That is, it's a 
big and complicated and interesting question that. But yes, there are environmentalists who don't buy into that narrative. And a very famous uh, one is um, Lomborg, who who wrote a book about this recently. Actually, he is a vegetarian. Okay. Um, Bjorn Lomborg, he's a vegetarian, but he he says it's an absolute waste of time to think of being vegetarian for the sake of the planet. There are lots of reasons to be vegetarian. He's a big animal welfare activist, but saving the planet isn't one of them. Mm. So, and and also early on, I came across uh, the work of Miles um, Allen, who's a IPCC member. He's he's served on many of those committees. He's from the University of Oxford. Very highly thought of very um, esteemed scholar. Um, and he has also said, look, we could eradicate methane, all the methane from livestock, and that would shift global temperatures by a tiny bit. You know, I think it was a couple of hundredths of a degree in 20 years time. Mm. But meanwhile, carbon from fossil fuel industries is heating the planet up at an alarming rate. And if we don't address the fossil fuel element, yeah. pretty much nothing else matters. Mm. Nothing else matters. Yeah. So that puts in perspective this whole idea of, oh, well, I'm doing my bit by not eating meat. I think that that has become a way of virtue signaling, a way for people to make themselves feel better because, you know, it... If you look at the numbers, they just do not add up yeah. to, to that being a viable and influential solution. So in this country and in the U.S., let's say livestock is in this country is, is, um, generates about 7% of our emissions. You compare that to transport, around 25%. Energy, another 25%. Uh, business and residential use, all of these these sources of, of um, emissions, which are dependent on fossil fuels. So this is where we need to start attacking the problem. Hmm. But I think saying, saying you're, not, you're giving up meat almost makes you feel as if you don't have to tackle those problems mm. as well in our lives. And yeah. that's why it's such an attractive thing yeah. for people to do, to latch on to. Yeah. Just buy a Prius and stop eating meat and you're doing your part. <laughs> That's right. And people think it's it's they can do that at no cost, right? But of course, there is a cost. There's a cost to nutrition. And it's something that people don't think about hard enough about what that long-term cost will be for themselves and to, for the world, you know? Yeah. Um, and what are some of those costs? I wanted to get into that. Like how, how do you paint the picture of how plant-based diets are harmful? Thanks to BioOptimizers for sponsoring the show, and I'm really excited to tell you guys about an excellent deal they're offering this November. This is the biggest blowout deal they will be offering all year, so if there's a time to stock up, it is now. What they're offering is over $200 worth of free gifts and a huge discount all month long on their Magnesium Breakthrough product. Their Magnesium Breakthrough is a full-spectrum magnesium supplement that includes seven unique forms of magnesium for stress relief, better sleep, and mental health all in one bottle. They're offering all sorts of awesome free gifts and products worth over $200 with select purchases. All month long, they're offering 10% off using my unique code. And you can only get this exclusive deal through my link, special for you listeners. You won't find it on Amazon or even the BioOptimizer's website. Go to magnesiumbreakthrough.com slash carnivore 
and use code CARNWAR to get your discount and free gifts today. Thanks so much and have a great day. I think, first of all, you just have to start with the nutritional basics, which is it is a, it's acknowledged even on a websites like the Vegan Society's website that um, a plant's only diet, and I mean only, so if you're cutting out all animal source foods, uh, is short on a whole range of nutrients, whether it be B12, D3, vitamin A, EPA, DHA, zinc, iron, you know, I could go on. And these are critical, critical nutrients. So it is a fact that the diet is short on some of those, and some of them you can't get at all. So B12, you can't get any of, you can't get any DHA either. So that's number one. Number two is the protein um, difference between plant proteins and uh, animal source proteins. So they're diff- they're very very different animals. Actually, it's a pun. It wasn't meant to be a pun, but they are different animals. Um, so they're you know plant proteins are less bioavailable, so they're not as usable by our bodies, and they're less complete. They don't have all the amino acids, and I guess people who don't understand what that means we'll say, well, so what if I don't have them all? But if you don't have all the amino acids in the right um, amounts, then you may as well not be eating the protein at all because it's not going to do what it's supposed to do. It's not going to synthesize within the body. So these are really important shortfalls um, in that diet. And then what happens is you'll you'll find people, or I've met people who say, well, I'm fine on the vegan diet. So all of that this can't be worth very much, you know, that that nutritional argument. And I think there have been a number of theories and they're evolving all the time as to why some people do thrive on a vegan diet and others just suffer within three months and have to give it up or they suffer within a year and, and, and have to give it up. And I think there are different abilities that our bodies have, for instance, to metabolize vitamin A uh, and to make vitamin A out of plant sources some people just do not have that capability, 50% of us approximately, and others do. So if you happen to be a person who can turn vitamin A from plants or carotene from plants into vitamin A, okay, you might feel okay on, on a vegan diet. Similarly, we have very different capacities to process carbohydrates in our guts. And uh, plant proteins tend to be really high in carbohydrate. And if you're one of these people that um, struggles to process that, you're going to have a lot of bloating, a lot of sickness and, and gastro distress. Um, but others get away with it. So I, I think that the general uh, argument about lack of nutrition in a vegan diet uh, can, can be mitigated for those people who who seem to do well for a certain period of time because of specific genetic differences in their, in their makeup. Uh-oh, I can't. Sorry, I was you. muted. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's a really valid point. I think also some people like nutrient deficiencies just take time to develop. That's right. Um, so it's a slow signal uh, or slow feedback loop rather um, of like whether, whether the diet is actually harming you. And there may yeah. be that really strong initial feedback of like, I stopped eating a bunch of harmful processed foods and yeah. I feel better. And that's very hard to like 
argue with. Um, That's right. Convince people otherwise because they're so influenced by those two factors. But the thing that worries me the most is, in fact, just before I came onto this podcast, I was out um, uh, in my front yard, um, just tidying up a bit, and a young woman walked by the end of the road, and she happens to be a friend of my son's girlfriend, and she introduced herself, and um, she, she, we got to chatting. We'd never met before, and uh, but she knew our house. And, and so she said, what do you do for a living? So I told her what I do. And I told her about this book. And she said, oh, well, that's really interesting because I've been a vegan for eight years. And she said, it works really well for me. Really, really well. Hmm. This is a 24-year-old woman oh. who is going to go on to try to have children at some point, probably. And that's what worries me. It worries me that she thinks she's doing well, but she has absolutely no idea what that diet is doing to her body mm. and uh, in fertility wise, yeah. uh, because women need fat. They need the fat to conceive. Yeah. You know, Professor. Um, We're back. Good. Um, Professor Ben Bickman, who you will also know of his work, I would imagine, on insulin resistance, he has yeah. said categorically that, you know, the vegan diet is incompatible with human survival. And what he means by that is we, women can't keep reproducing if, they, if, they're, if they're eating a vegan diet, if too many of them are eating a vegan diet. So that's what worries me most. It's my number one concern. And maybe if I had to pick one, one group of people that I'm writing this book for, it would be those young women. Yeah, and then even more frightening is when those young women have children, what do That's they feed right. their children? That's right, yeah. And do you see this narrative um, making its way into like schools and other um, places that might be influential on children as well? Yeah, I don't have firsthand experience with that because my kids are all grown up, they're not in school anymore, um, but I do hear it from people who are working in the field. I hear it from doctors, psychiatrists, teachers, parents, and it is truly frightening. So I, I know um, uh, I'm working with a group of people who are specifically trying to counter that message by going into schools to talk about what is real food, what is healthy food, and also what are the benefits of farming and particularly regenerative farming to, to help open people's minds up to a different view. Yeah, that's wonderful. I think that's mm -hmm. super important. Um, mm -hmm. It's very similar to uh, how influential the um, nutrition guidelines can be. Uh, that's right. You know, over there, you have the public health collaboration um, with Sam Feltham. And over here, we have the Nutrition Coalition with um, Nina Teicholz. Um, yeah. And I think that work is really critical because um, it can influence not only school lunch menus, but also prisons and um, places like nursing homes, which mm -hmm. are required to follow um, those yeah. nutrition guidelines. And hospitals where people are yes. supposed to be getting better, right? <laughs> and they don't Pretty get boring. better. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And um, what influence uh, do and incentives do large corporations um, have on this plant-based uh, conversation? Yeah, well, I, I think with trying to understand the role of corporations, food companies, you just follow the money. It's just about the money. Um, and they're just doing what they do. 
which is they look for new market opportunities, new growth opportunities and profit opportunities. And this whole vegan revolution, as it's called, has been just like handing them those opportunities on a plate, right? This is, this is a wonderful new expansion mechanism for them. Um, and they will do everything possible to justify that because that's what marketing is and that's what they've been doing forever. And so they've attached those messages around the environment and health to these new products. And so suddenly plant-based when attached to some new food product is like the bomb that soothes every conscience. It makes everybody feel great about eating it, right? And suddenly we don't have margarine anymore. We have plant-based butter and that's Uh a better thing, isn't it? (laughs) That's a much better thing. So, um, there's no question that profit is what's driving these these companies, and um, some of them are getting uh, caught out, though. So we've had a couple of cases. I don't over here in Europe. Um, I don't know if you'd be aware of um, one of our big retailers, Tesco, was slapped on the wrist for false falsely advertising the environmental benefits of its plant based oh, processed wow. foods. Oatly is a milk com- a plant-based milk company, and it was also slapped on the wrist and told to withdraw its advertising. So we're beginning to see a little bit of pushback, which yeah. gives me heart. Yeah. That's really interesting. I wonder who the groups are who are <laughs> cracking down on these um, companies. I'm, I'm actually pleasantly surprised. Yeah, well, that's just our advertising standards authority. So yeah. really, they're doing us a great, great favor. But I do know there's also a class action suit. Uh, I believe it's a private suit in America against Beyond Burger mm-hmm. because it has falsely proclaimed the amount and the quality of protein in its in its product. So it's happening in a different right. way in, in North America. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. And another thing I believe you talk about in the book is um, the Seventh-day Adventists. Yes. Yeah. Can you yeah. talk a little about about them and, and their influence on this? Yeah. Yeah. It's a fascinating story. And uh, I first became aware of it and really dug into it, courtesy of the research of Belinda Fetke, hmm. um, who you will probably know. Yeah. And she's done a great job of exposing the web of connections. But it's fascinating that the, the Seventh-day Adventist Church has managed to wrap what is essentially a religious belief about food, wrap it in this cloak of lifestyle medicine, all embroidered with planet, save the planet embroidery and make it, you know, make it uh, look very, very appealing to people. Yeah. And uh, for those of your um, listeners who don't know, the, the Seventh-day Adventist Church was founded in 1863. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was founded upon the belief that um, we were ordained by God to eat a Garden of Eden diet, which was mainly fruits, seeds, and nuts. And so that belief in more than vegetarianism, that's kind of a limited vegetarianism too, isn't it? That was embedded in the church. Um, It went on to be um, embedded in the mind of John Harvey Kellogg, who was a protege of that church. He then founded his entire Kellogg's company on the basis of trying to steer people away from meat and towards cereals because meat was going to make people have lustful thoughts. It was going to cause people to masturbate, and that was, of course, very wrong. So 
they tried to steer people away from that. And, uh, and so it continued on into the, um, the 20th century um, with protégés of um, Kellogg's founding, this Lena Cooper in particular founded the American Dietetics Association. She then wrote the textbook that was used by dietitians. So her whole point of view was embedded in, in their point of view. And then we now see today um, that many of the, the members of the, di- of the Dietary Guidelines Committees have an affiliation with the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Yeah. So that influence that they have is working its way down to every single one of us through those guidelines, that bias against animal source foods. It's quite remarkable. Yeah, it's crazy. It's like a superpowered tax advantaged lobbying group. It's unbelievable. <laughs> and you know, I was I came across the other day um, uh, a piece of paper from 2016, I think it was, where Loma Linda University, which is a Seventh-day Adventist University, had announced that they were founding a new school within the university, which would research and prove the environmental benefits of a vegan diet. Uh, Think about what that means for a second. That's not a new school to explore science and to see what science tells us. It's It's a school to make the science fit the religious belief, Yeah. right? And it's terrifying that that is allowed to happen in this day and age. Yeah, yeah. And yet that university is churning out reports that get fed into our news system and that we are are asked to believe. Yeah, yeah. And the headlines won't say, um, you know, Seventh-day Adventists. That's right. University found this. It'll just say, new study. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly, exactly. It's it's quite um, unnerving how little the media probes, how little interrogation goes on. They just mm-hmm. report the studies and they, they don't dig into them at all. Yeah. And thinking of the Seventh-day Adventists, it reminds me because they're, they're one of the Blue Zones, um, yeah. famous Blue Zones. Um, a lot of people I have heard um, one being my father, <laughs> um, yeah. use uh, use the plant based narrative as a means of saying like this is the most longevity promoting diet, mm-hmm. and all this research points to the longevity of people who eat more plants and more vegetables and less meat. Um, is that something you you dug into your research? The like longevity longevity longevity. I didn't dig into longevity per se, but mm. the blue zone idea, uh, the blue has been bastardized really. So what the, what really is a blue zone diet has been totally transformed. Suddenly, it's a plant based diet, in the same way that the Mediterranean Mediterranean diet is suddenly a plant based diet, right? And actually, that's not the case. So mm. if you go to some countries in the Med and you like Spain and you try to order vegetables, good luck because they don't want to serve them to you in a restaurant. They are all about the meat. They're all about the fish. And so we've allowed these two concepts, med diet and blue zone diet, to be bastardized. And really, if you dig into both of those, they, yes, some of them, some of those blue zone um, uh, cultures did 
thrive on mostly plants and others have way more meat and fish. And um, so it, it's really, in fact, it points to the, the bastardization of the whole term plant-based. It is really a very dangerous term because everybody uses it in a different way. Yeah. You never know which way it is being used. It's not specific. It's not specific. And there are countless surveys which which tell us that when individuals like you and I are asked whether we eat plant-based or not, we might say yes, even though to us that just means um, we have a couple of vegetables alongside what is really quite a heavy meat and fish-based diet. And to other people, it means only plants. but. It's so varied that you can't get any uh, accuracy around the use of that term. It's it's really quite dangerous. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly the word I was thinking too. It's it's a dangerous, dangerous term. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the UN, by the way, I think uses it very loosely. So, in in the sixth assessment, you have alongside um, the admission by the UN that say. The methane, the effect, the warming effect of livestock has been uh, exaggerated or overestimated by three to four times because of the metrics we've been using. Okay, so that would seem to be an admission that um, we really need to rethink the demonization of meat eating and cattle in the framework of other sources of uh, um, emissions. But then in the same paper, they're saying the number one thing we need to do is around the globe is go plant-based. Mm. So you have these incredible inconsistencies within the same report, right. um, probably because they're written by committee, but also they don't really specify what plant-based means. Yeah. They just use the word, which is, you know, not very helpful to the rest of us who are trying to figure out what they mean. Yeah. Have you faced a lot of pushback or um, negativity around the release of the book or like how has it been perceived generally in, in the media? So over here, there's been quite a good media reception on some fronts. So I was on, you know, our, our two big morning shows and that's quite mainstream. Great. Um, and in a couple of the big newspapers reviewed and big spreads. And, and so that was very encouraging. Um, and on social media, just a ton of positive reception. So people very, very glad that somebody's talking about this, very glad that, you know, we might be able to steer the direction, the, the, the debate in a, a little bit of a different direction. And then there is the negative stuff, which was inevitable and I did expect it. Um, and, you know, it can be quite vile at times. Um, but it isn't, to be honest, it's not as overwhelming as I thought it would be. What is interesting, I think, is a much more subtle response, which is worrying, which is that some bookstores and some liberal media just just declined to feature the book at all, Mm. just because it's too hot to handle. And they've actually said that to my publicist. Oh, We we just can't go there, right? So this is this is how free speech gets killed. It's yes. not necessarily always by people shouting you down. It's by people quietly ignoring you, yeah. right? And that is happening a little bit. That's terrible. I mean, I, 
I'm going to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if some of those newspapers or some of those places had sponsors who were, you know, plant-based food companies um, yeah. or something like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Well, we already know that in the case of, say, um, the Guardian newspaper here yeah. is that they have had two, two years of consecutive um, grants from an animal rights activist organization called OPP. So naturally that slants them towards the, the plant-based view by, by necessity. Yeah. Um, well, this has been excellent, Jane. Thank you so much for taking the time. I've learned a ton um, and I'm very excited to read the book. Um, Good. I'll have links to that and um, your Twitter account in the show notes. Is there anything else I should link out to? And um, what, what kind of goals do you have going forward? Do you want to write more about this topic? Or, or how are you thinking? Yeah, I do want to write more. And uh, um, I'm just, you know, I'm exhausted at the moment. So no, not yet. But sure. um, eventually what I'd really like to do is maybe produce a um, a short version of this, which is a, you know, for kids, for, you know, 10 things you need to know sort of thing that people can just digest very quickly. That would yeah. be a, a part of my goal. In terms of right now, you are, you're in America. Yes. and um, the hard copy is not available in America yet. It's just the digital and audio. audio. Mm-hmm. The hard copy will be available in January, which might confuse okay. some people. But if they really want to get a hold of it fast, they can order it through amazon.co.uk instead. So that's one way to get it. Okay, great. I'll have links to all that. And thanks so Thank much you. for your time today, Jane. Thank you. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting the Carnivore Cast on Patreon. By becoming a patron, You'll help us reach more people and continue to create content on Carnivore. There are also exclusive perks available, such as private Q&As, consultations with me, and more. Become a supporter at patreon.com slash carnivorecast. Check the episode description for the link. Thank you, and I'll see you there. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carnivore Cast. If you enjoyed this episode, please review on iTunes. It really helps us out. And share it with a friend. What questions would you like answered or who would you like to hear from in the carnivore research community? You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at carnivorecast or go to carnivorecast.com. You can also email me at info at carnivorecast.com. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, keep it carnivore.